Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Me and Tom and Hunter are here this morning. Hunter was gracious enough to come and podcast with us on a Friday morning because Tom and ha- Tom and I had a big plan for a podcast for yesterday, and then a squirrel got fried at the substation in Leland, and we were without power for most of the middle part of the day. And the guy we were going to podcast with had other places to be, so we let him go on down the road. So we got Hunter to come over this morning. It says a lot about the squirrel population in this part of the world. That's just my tidbit for the morning. Well, they said Leland to Hollandale, <laughs> that squirrel hit the wrong spot. And is now a crisp <laughs> and a puff of smoke. If he knocked that much power out, I'm going to say there's not anything left. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a thing. Progress beyond fried squirrel to no squirrel. <laughs> Hunter's scrolling through his phone. I assume that means he's looking for stats or something to spout out when we get to talking about rice. So September is National Rice Month, and we're going to talk about that some and and talk about some of the other stuff that Hunter's had going on in, what is this, your second second go-around. So everything gets easier on the second go-around, right? Mm, Debatable. Debatable. I've always told you that. You find some additional challenges <clears throat> in that second. Well, yeah, year. No, I didn't. I don't count for adding extra stuff. <clears throat> oh yeah, the stuff you do the second time gets easier. There's just many problems. They're just not the same problems. You find that out when you get to year sixteen too. Don't worry about it. So one complication Hunter has this year in year two that he also had last year in year one is another baby on the way. Yeah. At least this one's coming in December and not in August. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just started sleeping, though, with the first one. so I didn't have a great question for you, Hunter. So my question is, where's this baby going to sleep? Do y'all have I'm sure in the bed with us like everybody else. <laughs> is this baby going to be named Toledo? Going to shoot for a lesser-known city in no, the Midwest? No, this, this one is Danny Joe Marie. Okay. Already have a name picked. We like to use all the names. Impressive. I tried to tell her with Boston George Thomas that, you know, we could save some names in case we ever had another baby. We'd have a few left, but. You got plenty of names to pick from. Exactly. Don't worry about it. Yeah. We have enough bedrooms for everybody. We, they, just, don't that, use, we just don't use them. That was my question. Is everybody going to have their own room or are we going to start bunking up? They'll have their own room. They just won't use it. So why don't you move to one of the That's usually what happens about 2 o'clock in the morning. Just knock some walls down. Make a cold dorm. Just one big (laughs) sleeping facility. Yeah, it's fine. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I just go find an empty bed somewhere. What's the dog's stance on the... He follows me wherever I go. (laughs) (laughs) If I get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and get out of my bed and go somewhere else, I just drag his dog bed with me. See, if that were my house, everybody would complain about the fact that you took my dog to sleep with you. It's like, no, no, the dog knows where it needs to go. It's coming with me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, the dog dog knows what room it's going to take to get a good night's sleep. Since I'm the only person in the Allen house that our dog actively spoons with, and she gives me, like, no space on that bed just right up next to me. So I don't know why that is. Boston has learned to, like, get to the edge of the bed and then turn around backwards and hold on to the comforter and just slide off. Well, last night he got in too big of a hurry and he just went off head first 
That happens. Luckily, Madison's suitcase was at the foot of the bed from this weekend that she hadn't unpacked yet, so it just kind of caught him. He got to fall in a nice little pile of clothes. That's why it didn't get unpacked. Safety net. That's right. Like I mentioned, September is National Rice Month, and we'll get to that in a second. Before we do, Hunter, once you update us on where rice harvest is and if you heard any general numbers on yield so far and where did we kind of fall out on acres too? For us, I'd say we're probably 30%, maybe a little more harvested. A lot of people started last week uh, pretty heavily. A lot of them, you know, were cutting the high ends of the fields where the moisture was down and then the low ends were still a little high, so they're going back now catching that as far as around Bolivar County or south of us here. And then as you move further north, they're just now, you know, getting really kicked off real good because they've been fighting moisture, trying to get moisture down. A lot of those guys are still having 23-plus moisture. And so they've been salting a lot of rice in that area, I think, in the past few days, trying to help bring that moisture down so that they can hurry up and get into it. Yield-wise, I haven't heard any complaints, so I think that's a good sign, isn't it? Nobody's complaining. It's got to be good, right? I would say yes to that. I would also say yes. Most of the numbers I've heard are anywhere from 180 to 200-plus bushels an acre. Haven't heard anything from anybody, you know, outside of Stoneville as far as milling, but all the plots that we've milled, have been a 55-plus, so milling looks good. Maybe some of this later stuff we might get into, some milling starts to fall off, but right now all the plots that we've looked at and milled have been pretty good. I worried about the heat, those two really hot weeks that we had, and that one, that, that this most recent one, what middle part of August, it was probably a little bit late for at least the rice on our latitude and then most of it in Bolivar County, too. Maybe further north, it was kind of in the period where it might have affected it. But the one in July, you and I had talked about that at the time. I wasn't sure what that was going to do because we were in a really heavy heading period at that point. You know, a lot of pollination going on. Well, and you hadn't heard anybody screaming and hollering about bacterial panicle blight, which is typically the one yeah. that occurs in conjunction with those temperatures and growth stages. And so far, I hadn't seen a picture or anything show up where somebody's been complaining about that. I think what saved us during all that was the fact that we just didn't get any rain. So, I mean, we didn't have all the environmental factors that we needed. If we might have caught one big rain in there, it might have been a completely different story. But that rice just stayed dry and hot. And we've talked about that in here, Tom. I think when me and you and Trent talked about the harvest age for soybeans, but it was that week. It was really, the temperatures were really high, but it was windy and the humidity was pretty mild. It was hot, but it was a kind of a different kind of hot for Mississippi Delta. And then this one in August was just blast furnace hot. I mean, the, the heat index was crazy too. I think if we would have had more moisture in those July hot temperatures, I think it'd be a different story right now. I think we'd be seeing some pretty bad meals, milling yields. You know, if you look at Louisiana, I think they're having some trouble with milling now. That's what they're figuring out. They had a good crop. You know, it yielded well coming out of the field, and then they started milling it, and they've started seeing some pretty bad numbers. And, you know, they had a lot more moisture down there than we did this summer. They certainly did in some parts of Louisiana because you get towards the Monroe area, and that was a totally different environment. Mm -hmm. It was smoking hot there and didn't rain much. Yeah, that, it was more like what we dealt with all that's, summer. That's exactly right. It's, it's been a strange year, to say the least. And we see that every year to a certain degree, but there's been really dry areas and, and areas that just caught those fluky rains. Clarksdale is an outstanding example, I think, based on 
who I've talked to and what I've looked at there, it appears that they had a substantial amount more moisture than parts south. At times. Though. That's right. And then, At times. And then it got dry just like it did in, say, Cleveland. I know a couple times it had rained down here and didn't rain up there. I can vividly picture the radars of the nights that it rained across that kind of latitude from, you know, wherever, Cahoma uh, County to into, into Tunica County and didn't rain down here. And that area up there is where most of the disease that I looked at this summer was. But a lot of that, there was more potassium deficiency than disease, I think. And so that was one of the things me and Tom have been talking about was, you know, why did we see all that potassium deficiency this year? And is that what led to the disease that we saw? Well, and that's one thing that I wanted to get to because I know that's one of the big issues that you looked at later on in the season, probably definitely since the last time you were in here with us talking about rice. What was that problem? You saw it more than once and kind of pinpointed the same problem, multiple areas, multiple counties even. Yeah. I could never really come up with an answer. I don't know if a lot of it was with fertilizer prices where they've been the past few years. We've cut back on our potassium or our K to save money because prices are so high. So that's one of the places we could cut for a year or two and try to save some money. And then this year it just really started showing up in the rice because of the extreme heat that we had. Or if it was just simply the extreme heat that we had making the potassium deficiency show up because the plant couldn't take up enough uh, because of all the stress it was going through. That was one of the things me and Tom talked about trying to figure out, you know, how do you put a number to that to determine was the potassium just not there or was it, could the plant just not take it up? I took pins of all those locations this year and I want to go back this fall and take a soil sample and just see, you know, what was available there in the soil at the end of the year. It'd be interesting to know what the soybeans in the previous years had cut too. One of the fields we were looking at, the soybean field beside it, you could see some potassium deficiency in it. And I even pulled a plant and took a picture and sent it to Trent Irby to look at. And he said, you know, same thing. And that's kind of an interesting part of the Delta. The soil's totally different in that little general area. When I drove through there, I was like, huh, I've never been here before. You expect it to all be pretty sandy up there. And then you get in that little pocket and it's yeah, it's, pretty- it's just strange. It's definitely different than anything else you encounter in other parts of the Delta. I'm not a soil guy, so I'll call it dirt. It's it's rice dirt. So then what did y'all ID the disease as? Or was, it, or was it disease? I don't think it was disease, and I think it was more a manifestation of a lack of nutrient. What disease did it look like? So how did you end so up So one of them looked a lot looked a lot like brown spot. That's right. And we saw okay. that with CLL15. You would get this stuff that looked like brown spot, and you could just pour potassium to it, and you couldn't get it to go away. And strangely, a lot of that looked like it was on older leaves. So mm-hmm. it was lower in the canopy, and those leaves would be stressed in all sorts of situations. And weren't you on one farm that it was in one variety and not another? Mm-hmm. or a variety and not a hybrid or vice versa. But it, it was it was a variety that we know would be tolerant versus one that wasn't. And tolerant so, to the disease. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's another thing. If you're putting it in a stressful environment, this was a row rice field, and so you already know you're going to have more pressure there. You know, you need to make sure that you're planting a variety that's going to have tolerance to 
something like blast or something that's more prevalent. And I hate to in say the it rise situation and keep coming back to it, but we're we're creating a potential situation when we change that environment because that's what we're doing. The particular rice cultivar is adapted for production in a flooded environment. Now, all of a sudden, you're putting into an environment where you don't have a flood. Which is one of y'all's main points on your triangle or square. Pyramid. Whichever one you're using. Whichever one you're using. It's a these pyramid. Days. It's not a square. So I thought y'all added another, another corner to it. I don't know anything about that. Okay. If they did, I'd be the last person to know. Is that like people trying to call... Uh, Barnyard grass, jungle rice these days? Probably so. I defer to all weed things. Historically, it's been barnyard grass. So I'm sticking with barnyard grass for and now. Point to Jason. Yes, stay with barnyard grass. That's going to be the Poston and him used to get into all sorts of conversations. Is it pigweed or water hemp? Well, now that was a thing back then. That's true. It was a thing. I, we, I we do remember some hemp, of those. Do we? Not anymore. We did? We oh, yeah, man. You used to... Uh, when Poston was here, you that was that was it. before my era. Well, Palmer just it, it bred it out of the landscape, man. But it's, you it's, see water hemp still in East Mississippi, yes, because that's what I call it based on my understanding of it. When you get to like the North Farm and parts of Noxabee County and even north of there, anything that yep. you see sticking up is not necessarily Palmer. That's right. It's water hemp. It, it's a lot more water hemp. Way back when. You would tend to see palmer on sandier ground and water hemp on the heavy ground, and now it's all palmer all the time. And you would see some of those other ones too, you know, smooth pigweed, stuff like that, and palmer just steamrolled it with the seed production. Well, that's kind of like what Jeff talked about last year when we did that resistance podcast where he was talking about, you know, the insects can breed resistance out. There's a fitness penalty with it. It's just the opposite with palmer because yeah, it it's breeds, way worse it breeds it in yep well and i hate to be the downer when it comes to the science thing but we spend too much time talking about fitness penalties and we don't spend enough time talking about what's the benefit so if there's not a penalty we always say well there's not a penalty but with that the trade-off becomes is there a benefit towards that particular instance being more fit which would be fitness benefit Palmer being the one that I have the most experience with that in ryegrass, I don't know that you can say there's a benefit to that plant beyond the fact that it can survive multiple herbicide modes of action. But I've never, I've never seen, you know, does it grow faster? Does it come up sooner? Things like that. But we also don't have any susceptible ones left to know. That's right. So that almost screams, that's the benefit. Palmer's genetics seed production, growth rate, all that, it was way higher than water hemp, which is the number two most troublesome one in the absence of resistance. It was a more aggressive species to start with. Well, that was a fun little... That was like an eight-minute diversion. Yeah, diversion into weed science. I appreciate that. I felt like it was useful. I appreciate y'all including me in, in the conversation. Could act like I feel like I know something about weed science. I pay attention when I ride up and down the road. Hunter, one of my first questions when we got into rice in Mississippi was acres. So where do you think we stand on that now that we're getting into harvest? I'm still sticking with the 120,000. There's a lot more rice this year if you ride up and down the road that you see. And a lot more row rice than I thought. That area that we were talking about up, you know, towards Clarksdale area, over towards Batesville in there. There's a lot of row rice in that area that just kind of got overlooked, I think. And I, 
I feel like our percentage on row rice acres is, is coming up. Was it 2021, Tom, 2020 crop, and we were, me and you and Jeff were comparing notes in sometime in early 2021. Somebody had asked us what percent of, of row rice acres we thought we had. And, and that year we said 20. In the last two years, we've been well below that, and then our total acres went down too. But I'm like you, Hunter. I think it's – I don't know that it's 20, but it may be. Yeah. I mean, I told people anywhere from 12 to 15 every time they asked. Now, I'm thinking now we're closer to 20. What is this year going to mean for next year's crop? Do you have any take-home message at this point? you think people are I happy think- about yield and how they did for 2023 enough to where they're going to plant – more rice next year? I think if things continue the way they have, I think everybody will be happy with it, and I think we'll see some more interest in rice. You know, one benefit so far this year is there hasn't been a whole lot of drift complaints on rice, and I think that's because we've gotten a lot of awareness around those herbicides this time of year, and so we're just a lot safer with them than we were in the past. Not saying that it's not going to happen or it couldn't happen, but it hasn't yet so far this year. It hasn't really been a problem. And that's where a lot of our rice acres went from everybody I talked to is, you know, they had problems with drift. It was definitely a big influencing factor, and it wasn't one single herbicide. It was just herbicide drift collectively has really influenced the rice acres in the time that I've been here. It's definitely top three factors. I mean, there's definitely been other things at play too, but it's been a major influencer. But just riding up and down 61 this year, I mean, if you look at the ditches and everything on the side of the road you don't see a whole lot of herbicide that's not on the soybean fields where they're desiccating that's moved into the ditch so I mean they're getting it pretty much exactly where they need to be I saw one the other day it was beans on beans and it was just a turn row so I assume it was the same grower and that the field that got drifted on it was probably close to ready too and it may not have have worried about it either mm-hmm. because that other field was getting close. Uh, just That's just based on the color of the canopy. I saw some rice like that across the turn row where they had salted one field and then it had you know, gotten in the edge of the other field. Hunter, September is National Rice Month. What can you tell us about National Rice Month? So I think the main thing that we try to promote with National Rice Month is just education over all the different types of rice that are grown in the world. So I didn't realize this until I looked it up right before we started doing this. There's 40,000 different kinds of rice that are grown all across the world. For us in Mississippi, I mean, on a year-to-year basis, we probably grow about 10. So that just tells you how many different kinds are out there. I think you kind of alluded to it in Asia – You've got each family has their own type of rice. Well, I would assume that that's at least possible. I was talking to a guy that Darren Dodds brought over here to visit. He grew up on a rice farm in India, and his family had they had an acre of land was their farm, and his father and his brother did it. I would say it would be very plausible that they had a some type of heirloom variety that. They'd been growing for generations. I don't know that that's the case, but you could definitely see where that was possible. And I think with the education trying to be about the different types of rice, we do a good job of that in Mississippi promoting Rice Month with the Rice Festival in Marigold that the Delta Rice Promotion does. And they're doing it again this year, September 21st. So they have a, a rice tasting contest where they cook all different types of rice, different recipes, 
and have a contest and have people come in and judge. And that's a good way to learn different types of rice, different ways to cook rice, different ways to use rice. I've never done it at the, the rice festival here. I was a judge at the uh, rice festival in Crowley when I worked for LSU, Tom. And I ended up in the category, I was a judge in the category of youth desserts. Yeah. That'd be a uh, good one to be in. Uh, well, you would think. How many different rice puddings did you eat? Multiple. <laughs> <laughs> You've lost count after yeah. eight. I just remember that one, and I did it more than one year. I, and I guess I, you start at the bottom and, and work your way up to the real chefs. But the one that won was a chocolate cake. But yeah, some of the rice puddings, whew. I'm not opposed to rice pudding, but there's only so many different ways you can. I like a really good one. <laughs> I, I know, and I know it when I have it. Pretty rare when I have a really good one. I judged a 4-H chicken cooking contest when I was a grad student in Arkansas, basically because Tom called me and the other grad student and said, hey, my wife needs help with this. Go judge it. Uh, but the one that won it, we wanted to go ask for more. <laughs> Fried chicken, grilled chicken, smoked grilled, chicken. It was all grilled, smoked chicken. They cooked it on these little, you know, the little $20 barbecue grills you yeah. go to Walmart and buy. And there was one, he knew what he was doing. These kids are like eight years old. And Sweet. I'd hire him, be my chef. So our big rice day is September 21st, and that's in Marigold. And if anybody hasn't been, it's an awesome time. I took my daughter last year, and she had a blast. We didn't get to taste much rice because she was more worried about getting her face painted and listening to the music. They've got bands and kids running around everywhere. And where is that in Marigold? Right there in front of Crawdads and Hey Joe's, that little, basically it's two parking lots, and they just fill up the whole downtown Marigold area with stuff. And Delta Rice Promotions is... So, Large Aang, Giacaya does a lot with it. She pretty much puts it all together. Then the other rice event we have traditionally in the fall would be the, the Delta Area Rice Meeting in November. So, do we have a date for that yet? So, the plan is November 15th right now. We'll all talk about our projects that we're doing in rice uh, that's mostly funded by the Rice Promotion Board and give a summary of results of everything that we're doing. Uh, all the grad students that we have at Stoneville, so we've got a ton of grad students working in rice that are funded by the Rice Promotion Board through the checkoff dollars. They'll give us a little summary of their self and kind of what they're working on. And then we're hoping to have somebody come in and talk about the Endangered Species Act and all, everything that's going on with that right now and the mitigation strategies that they've released. Proposed. Proposed. And that was actually the podcast that we had planned for yesterday. Was with Andy Whittington with Mississippi Farm Bureau was going to visit with us about that. And we'll get definitely get Andy on here when the power's not out. So Andy said he thought he could be there to talk about it. So that's that's who we're planning on having. Well, and he knows more about it than anybody I know in person. If you're curious, the comment period for that, these are proposed strategies. The comment period has been extended from September 22nd to October 22nd. So I'd encourage anybody that has a vested interest in really in agriculture to post comments on that because it... Uh, How do they get to that website? Is there a website for that? I'm sure there is. Hold on. We've got it in the email, don't we? It's regulations.gov, Tom, but then there's a pretty lengthy docket number after that. So hopefully you could go to regulations.gov and then maybe search herbicide strategy and find it from there. I don't 
quote okay. me on that, but it's at least regulations.gov no, is, so is it, jumping off point. Hunter, thanks, Dave, for coming on short notice. Appreciate what you do. You've done a good job in the time that you've been here. Yeah, keep up the great work. I know the growers in the state are happy to have you, and Tom and I are too. Well, I appreciate all the support I've gotten from y'all as well as, you know, growers in the state, consultants. Everybody's been extremely helpful to me in this position, and so I've really enjoyed it. Tight-knit group. I think we all could say that. Oh, yeah. We'll let you get back to what you were doing before we hijacked your morning. We're going to go clean up a combine and cut some rice. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.